Holy Scripture. And we will be reading from Hebrews 11 as we continue our way through this magnificent chapter about faith. And we'll see there are actually significant implications in this chapter for our understanding of baptism in the Christian life. So please turn in your Bibles to page 1195. We'll be reading Hebrews 11, 17 through 22. Please rise for the reading of God's infallible word. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the end of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, there is no blessing in any of the things that we do in the sacraments, in prayer, in reading the word, in preaching the word, unless your spirit crowns those wonderful gifts with your saving power. And so we pray, as the word is preached and as the word is heard, that you would crown your word with the saving power that only you possess. And you give us the gift of faith and strengthen that gift within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm convinced that the deepest pain that a person can experience in this life is actually not physical, but spiritual. And that one of the most difficult spiritual pains that anyone can experience is when your hopes are dashed, when the expectations that you have just completely crumble to the ground. And it happens in so many ways in this dark and difficult valley of tears in which we walk, in so many different spheres of life. A person gets married, what are they expecting? They're expecting joyous fellowship, um, ever-deepening intimacy, a shared life, a sense of joint purpose together that will just keep growing. But then what sometimes happens? One, one person realizes, wow, there are deep issues that are completely thwarting all of that, and those things are not going away. And there's that feeling of just being crushed. Or a person begins their life with a sense of just so many different exciting careers and vocations, and of course they're excited and, and looking forward to those things, and then what can happen? Well, decades later, They find themselves locked into a job that is so underwhelming and there's no time to go back and learn a new calling and start again. They're stuck. I could just keep making examples. You know, the the examples are limittless, unfortunately. Um, A a church that promises 
thriving, a place of thriving and of growth, what can happen? It can be a place where there's betrayal and deep discouragement. Or a friendship, it's going super well. And then all of a sudden, here's this person that you thought was really your friend, super close to you, and they betray you, and they turn their back, and they suddenly become very cold to you, and you have no idea why. These are moments that truly crush us. And it's when, like, the wind is just totally taken out of our sails, and we're asking, where are you, God? Like, what am I supposed to do now? I thought, this was not, I thought, part of the script, part of the plan. I just want to ask you, as we begin together, I know this is a sobering beginning, but are you in a place like this right now? Is this a place where you are right now? Or maybe, maybe you're a young person who says, well, yeah, I've heard of stuff happening like that to people, but that's not going to happen to me. Or maybe you're an older person who says, yeah, I've been through those places. I know exactly what you're talking about, but that's in the past. I submit that all of us, all of us, have to at some point pass through the valley of deep disappointment that I've just described at one time or another. And we don't know if it'll happen again, even if we've already been there. And our lives, they just never go according to script, right? We have this idea of how things are going to go. And we even sometimes think this idea is what the Bible promises me. And yet that script never seems to happen like we expect, right? And I, I hope that as you're thinking about that very difficult feeling, that difficult pain of disappointment, I hope that you will come to that with a sense of hope. Think about all the things that we've already seen that faith gives us, even though we're only halfway through Hebrews 11. We've been amazed, I hope, at the power of faith, how life-giving faith is. We've seen how faith gives us the power to endure. We've seen how faith is the key to our acceptance before God. We've seen how faith moves us to action, even when we don't see how it's all going to play out. And we've seen last time how faith enables us to endure, especially in this difficult exile, time of exile, in which we find ourselves here on earth. Now, we're going to see how faith gives us the power to hope, even when there seems to be no reason to hope. And we're going to see... First, how God gave the gift of faith and the power to hope, even when there seems like there's no reason to hope, to four Old Testament saints, four patriarchs, and how God strengthened them, even in a valley of deep disappointment and confusion. And then, based on their example, we're going to look at how God gives us the grace to grow in hope and true encouragement, even in the face of deep sorrow. So I hope you noticed, as we were reading through 17 through 22 there, that there's a running theme with all four of the patriarchs we heard about. In each case, each one of those four men, the patriarch in question was confronted with a major obstacle to hope. In each case, each one of the things that he faced, and we're going to trace them all out, each one of those things are the kinds of things that if you and I were confronted with the very same thing, we would be tempted to give up. We would be tempted to say, okay, it's over. <laughs> But in each case, this is what's so amazing, and this is why they're in the Hall of Fame of Faith. In each case, they did not do that. But they continued in faith and in hope. So let's see how they did it. First is Abraham. Now, we already just heard in the passage last time one instance of his great faith when he had no children, and yet he believed. He believed God's promises that even he, this old man, 
would be able to have not just a child, but eventually offspring as many as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And now we hear about another great moment of faith. After they had received this miracle child, Isaac, and he really was a miracle child, right? I mean, think about it. Sarah gave birth to him at age 90, and Abraham was 100. And then, remember what happened? It took a number of years for him to grow some. And after he had grown, God explicitly told him, through Isaac, your offspring will be named. In other words, through Isaac will be the heirs of the promise that I made to you. And so that's why in Hebrews eleven seventeen, the author of Hebrews can say that Isaac is Abraham's only son. Of course, by then, he, he already had Ishmael, another son, right? But there were other children that Abraham would have. But Isaac is his only son in the sense that only Isaac was named by God as the heir of the great promises of the kingdom of God. Only Isaac is the one who will eventually receive the promise of the land of promise. Okay, so now imagine you've received this direct revelation of, of God. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then <laughs> the very next chapter, what happens? God says to Abraham, go offer Isaac your son as a sacrifice. What would it be like? I submit that at the very least it would be deeply perplexing and confusing. What, what are you doing? How could God ask this? I mean, the false gods ask for child sacrifice. Surely not you, the Lord, who's so good. And not only that, like, what about what you just said? What about the promise? I mean, Abraham and Sarah, they had been waiting 25 years for Isaac to be born. And then he grows up. And now after all these decades, you're going to say he needs to die? He needs, God's going to take him away? I mean, every fiber of your being would just be screaming, no, it can't be. Why are you saying this? This makes absolutely no sense. And yet, isn't this amazing? It makes absolutely no sense. And yet Abraham did it. He took his son to Mount Moriah. We just heard this. Found him on the wood. He was about to slay him. He literally had the knife in his hand and was about to slay his son. When God told him to stop, and showed him he, that he had appointed the substitute, this ram that was caught in the bushes who would be slain instead. And it's just so hard for us, you know, this is a very familiar story. It's so hard for us who know the end of the story to really get into Abraham's head and understand how could he have done this? Like, he didn't know that was going to happen. How was he able to do this? How was he able to actually lift that knife to slay his beloved son when everything in his being was saying, don't do it? Well, the answer is faith. Faith. In particular, the author of Hebrews says, Abraham considered God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. And we actually get a hint of this faith in the passage, in Genesis 22 itself. Um, that verse where it says, uh, Abraham says to his servants, we can kind of blow past this, but it's really quite amazing what Abraham says to his servants. He says to his servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and we will worship. And then get this, we will return back to you. Now that's an amazing thing for someone to say who is fully intending to slay his son. How can he say, we will return back? 
Well, what happened is this. Abraham took God at his word. God had said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Therefore, if God says, offer your son Isaac, it must mean that God will give him back to me from the dead. And so it was. Isaac was a dead man. He had the sentence of death upon him, and yet God gave him back to Abraham from the dead alive. It was because of faith. The other three patriarchs, we're going to treat them more shortly here, but um, it's the same thing that each of them is facing. They're both facing similar acts of similar difficult moments, and they both, all, all three of these other ones, are going to do similar acts of defiant hope in the face of seemingly impossible circumstances. Next one is Isaac. It says here, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And when we're thinking of Jacob and Esau, and when um, Isaac blesses him, if you're familiar with Genesis 27, we're thinking of all the shady stuff <laughs> that was going on there. Um, you know, Jacob dressing up like Esau, stealing the blessing. Um, Isaac and Rebekah are both playing favorites. Esau afterwards is so angry he wants to <laughs> kill Jacob, so he has to run away. Um, that's what we remember when we think of those passages. Very colorful story. But here's what the author of Hebrew remembers, and this is kind of amazing. Here's what the author of Hebrew remembers. He remembers something else. He points to the faith that it took for Isaac to offer a blessing at all. Think about it. Here's Isaac. He's at the end of his life. He knows he's about to die. He knows he's at the end of his life. He's dwelt in tents his whole life, just like Abraham, his father. And he knows of the Lord's promise to make him into a great nation. He knows all those promises. He knows he's supposed to inherit the land. And yet, Here's this guy who's supposed to become a great nation. He has just two boys, Jacob and Esau. And he's definitely not enjoying the land except as a, just a sojourner. He's a wanderer, right? And yet he has the audacious faith to invoke future blessings on these two boys. And in particular on Jacob. And it's really cool if you look at the words of blessing that he gives to Jacob. They mirror the words of promise that God made to Abraham. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. He's taking the promises that God made to Abraham and he's turning it into a blessing that he now gives to Jacob. Against all appearances to the contrary. Here's the faith part. Against all appearances to the contrary, what does Isaac do? He invokes blessing on his children. That shows faith in God's promise. And then third, there's Jacob, who's also shown to us at the end of his life. And here he is. He's dying. Where is he dying? Not in the land. He's dying in Egypt. And what does he do? He takes his two grandchildren, the sons of Joseph, and he will do this as well for his own boys later, and he invokes again a blessing on them. He believes that his children, there as sojourners in Egypt, not even in the land of promise anymore, he believes that blessing is coming to these boys. He believes that the Lord will be true to his promise, that they will have a future in the land. And there he is, dying in exile. And yet he offers, again, a blessing that echoes the promises to Abraham. And what does it say next? I love this part. And then Jacob worships. He's been through so much difficulty, so much hardship in his life, 
and yet he still had the faith to see God is still good. And so he worships. He says, I love this, what he says to Joseph uh, when he's blessing his grandchildren. He said, I never thought I would see your face again, Joseph. Remember, Joseph was the one who was sold into Egypt as a slave, and, and, and Jacob thought he was dead for decades, right? Uh, I never thought I would see your face again, and yet here I am seeing my grandchildren, your children, and I get to bless them. He sees the goodness of God by faith, and he worships. And then finally, there's Joseph. Again, Joseph. He's been betrayed by his brothers. This guy's had a hard life too. And we see him again at the end of his life after all the stuff, right? Being sold into Egypt, um, being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown in jail. What does he do as he's dying in Egypt? He gives orders about his bones. What's going on with that? It says, he looked forward to God's deliverance of the people out of Egypt, and he gave orders concerning his bones. What's, what's happening? He's showing that he really believes he is not going, the people are not going to stay there in Egypt forever, that they will, in fact, get to leave the land of Egypt and go to the land of promise. And he shows that he really believes it by how he talks about his bones. He, it's not a matter of, okay, if God does this, here's what you should do with my bones. He says, God will do this. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And what is that about? Well, the movement of his bones shows that he believes that he will be an heir of the promise of the land even after his death. Now, that's something to think about. Here's this guy. He knows he is not going to be buried in Egypt forever. He is going to be buried one day in the promised land. It is going to be a land that his offspring will possess. And so, even after his death, he will become an heir of the land. Why? Because his children and his children's children will become heirs of the land. It's one of those moments where we see the solidarity between parents and children. This is part of why we baptize babies, is there's a unity between the generations that causes us to say these children are in some sense one with their parents. Joseph said, look, if you guys inherit the land, I inherit the land. So bring my bones up when God gives it to you. In each of these cases, think about this. This is the big idea. In each of these cases, all these patriarchs died without seeing the land as their own. They never actually received the promise of the land themselves. And each of them went through great difficulty and perplexity their entire lives, especially, of course, Abraham, being told to sacrifice his son, right? They're always, I mean, they, they no doubt were tempted to ask, where is God in all this? Why is he taking so long? What happened to the promises, and why are we still stuck without having received God's good promise of the land? But what the main point of Hebrews 11 is, that may be their circumstances, but that's not how they're thinking. What are each of them thinking? They're thinking about what God has promised, and each one of them died in faith, confident in God's promise, confident that God would one day show himself faithful. Remember what faith is? It's not just this fuzzy feeling that leads us to take this big jump in the dark. No, faith is taking God at his word. These patriarchs took God at his word, and they trusted him. 
you are going to need, brothers and sisters, this kind of faith in the days ahead. I guarantee it. I guarantee that you will be tempted to go by what you see and not by what God has said. You will be tempted to doubt the victory of God over sin and death. You will be tempted to look at our society and all of its decline, and you will, you will be tempted to say, I thought the gospel was supposed to be salt and light. How is it that America has come to this? There will be times where you will be tempted to look at your kids in hard seasons and their struggles with sin and immaturity, and you'll be tempted to say, where did I go wrong? Lord, where is your faithfulness? You will be tempted in all the other examples I gave you, <laughs> marriage and um, in the church and your work, all those things from the beginning, right? In all of those, you'd be tempted to say, God, where are your promises? There's just so much we cannot, cannot understand. We face so many different perplexities. We're like, you know, little ants, which you never like to find in your house. But look, look, there are these ants uh, running around. Do they have any sense of the structure of your house, of like the layout? <laughs> no, they have no idea, right? Um, let alone the structure zooming further out of, like, your city, right? Well, that's like us in God's story. We really, we don't have a very good sense of what God, the great story God is telling in history. But here's the joy of having faith. You don't need to understand. You don't need to understand what God's doing right now in your life. Abraham did not understand the test with Isaac. He didn't know. What are you doing? He didn't know. What did he need? He needed to trust and take God at his word. And what this means for you, brothers and sisters, is that you need to trust. You need to take God at his his word, and you need to actively work to counter Satan's lies, the lies of unbelief. And you need to take God at his word. It means accepting his word even when it doesn't make sense. Here's an example. Depression afflicts the people of God in many ways. Maybe some of you. And depression says things in our hearts. It says things like this. I will never amount to anything. No one will ever notice me. The reason why I'm all alone is because I'm not worth loving. Everything's crashing down around me and there's nothing I can do. I'm hopeless. In our library, we have a book on depression. And in the back, there's this wonderful little gem where there's um, a list. It's written by a Christian counselor who's dealt with lots of people with, with depression. And he asked people whom he had counseled through depression, he asked them, okay, you found healing in Jesus Christ. What was the turning point? What was the point where you finally began to ascend out of the pit? And the very first thing, I absolutely love this. The very first thing is this. One person said this. This is their personal testimony of how God healed them from depression. I began to talk to myself rather than to listen to myself. I began, get this, this is so awesome. I began to speak different scriptures to myself rather than listen to my own voices of hopelessness. We are talking back to Satan's lies. We are not just passively taking things oh, it seems like everything's falling around around me. Everything's crashing down. This narrative I thought was supposed to be so good, it's not looking good. Everything's going to to destruction, right? No, 
We, we don't let that just barrage hit us and waves overcome us over and over again. No, we say, I resist you, Satan, with the word of God. And I'm not going to go by the way things seem to me. I'm going to go based on what God actually says in his word, the things I can be certain about, more certain about than what I see with my own eyes. Let me give you a few examples of things you can be certain about, brothers and sisters. This is the glory of worshiping such a gracious God. Let me, let me tell you some of the things you can be certain about from the word of God. We know for certain that God will judge the world in righteousness. Matthew 25, Revelation 19. He will make all things right. You can know this for certain, that all the things that seems like people are going to get away with, they will not. This is the answer to our temptation to despair and bitterness. That person who killed my child as a drunk driver, he's now let free and walking the streets. Where is justice? There will be justice. God promises. What is more? We know for certain that God will perfectly sanctify all of his people. Philippians 1.6, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. That is the answer to all kinds of feelings of despair about yourself and about others. Yes, God will one day uproot the most clean, chronic sin in my life and in the life of all these people whom I love but I'm really frustrated with. God will win. We also know that God will reverse every other effect of sin and the curse, including all bodily ailments and afflictions, even profound disabilities of the mind. God promises to reverse all of these for his people, as we saw in an evening service a little while back, 2 Corinthians 5. Indeed, God even says, in case I missed anything, he says it twice in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear. Everything unfair, everything sad will come untrue. In Jesus Christ, Jesus will reverse every aspect of sin's blight. You can know those things for certain because of the promises of God. And you know what happened when Abraham had that kind of hope? He saw his son return back to him from the dead. And the author of Hebrews says that was a type. That was a picture of something that was going to happen. What was that a type of? Jesus. Jesus is the true and better son of Abraham who actually did die. And in dying, brought all that is, in the e that is evil in this world to a decisive end. He defeated sin once and for all. He defeated death once and for all. And, you know, even when the disciples, whose hopes were dashed, and they started leaving town, they're like, well, we thought he was the Messiah. But then he died. Jesus came back as the firstborn of the new creation. And he said, all the promises that God made, they are guaranteed to come true. And here's the guarantee. I'm here, alive, forever. Jesus is the great reason. His resurrection is the great reason, the great guarantee that all the promises that we accept on faith will actually happen one day. If we just had the promises of God, that should be enough. But guess what? It's already started to happen in the resurrection of Jesus. And we may not see the fullness of this. We may not see the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ um, before we go to be with the Lord. We may not live to see it, but, you know, this is another reason why we baptize babies. Because we are part of a great unbroken line of generation after generation of those who hope. Going all the way back to Abraham, we baptize the babies of believers. And as we do so, we are saying, Lord, one day your church will see what you promised. And so we make orders, not regarding our bones, but regarding our flesh and bone. 
And we say, I know one day my offspring will rise and will bless your name. I know that one day on the last day when you return, you will find faith on the earth. And hope against hope, Abraham believed. And everything on the outside seemed like it was crashing, out, uh, crashing down around him. And he would have been tempted to say, as we are sometimes tempted to say, God's kingdom is going nowhere. He still believed and he hoped. And so likewise, God calls you, brothers and sisters, in this present time, when so many things outwardly are there to discourage you, to keep on hoping in his word. Keep on taking him at his promises. And all things God has promised through Jesus Christ to make things right through his resurrection power. Do you believe that? Do you have this faith? If you seek Jesus Christ, he will give it to you. And if you found Jesus Christ, if you've received the gift of faith, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then I solemnly exhort you, you need to live that faith. You need to keep speaking that faith to yourself against the despair that crowds in around us every single day. Keep speaking the truth of God's hope and God's promises to yourself. For brothers and sisters, the promises of God are more real than the deepest brokenness of this world. Let's pray. Lord, we believe, and yet we do struggle with doubt. And so we need to be reminded, we need to be reminded of the power of faith to resist despair. We need to be reminded of your faithfulness to your word and that we can take you at your word. And we need to be reminded of how you've already begun to do it in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the boon to our faith that all these things are. Help us to believe in Jesus and to truly hope. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.